This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. I'd like to welcome you to today's podcast, which will feature a discussion on the impact of comorbidities on the treatment and prognosis of lung cancer. So we're very fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Michael Gould, who is the lead author of a publication entitled Comorbidity Profiles and Their Effect on Treatment Selection and Survival Among Patients with Lung Cancer. And this was published in the October issue of the Annals. So Dr. Gould is a senior research scientist and the director for health services research and implementation science for Kaiser Permanente Southern California. He is a leading authority on a number of aspects of thoracic oncology, including lung cancer screening. So welcome, Dr. Gould, and thanks very much for taking the time to participate uh, in this podcast. Thanks, Craig. Nice to be here. Thanks. So listen, Mike, I, I chose this publication and this topic for today because of its obvious clinical relevance. So lung cancer accounts for the highest number of deaths compared to any other cancer in the United States. And so, in my opinion, sophisticated and more sophisticated guidance regarding treatment decisions and prognosis would obviously be uh, quite impactful. And I was also struck by the fact that this was a large and very well-designed study of more than 6,600 lung cancer patients using your large and very well-developed database from, from Kaiser Permanente. So I think it really... Uh, I think will illustrate a lot of important points for, for our clinicians. Uh, but to start with, I thought it would be very helpful for you to give us an update or a summary on the status of lung cancer in the United States. And if you can, uh, Michael, I'd like you to make some comment on current treatment approaches by stage, and then finally some standards or what standards you use or others to determine candidacy for treatment. Yeah, so um, thanks again, Greg. That's a great way to start off. Um, you know, I, I think it goes without saying, it's never a good time to be a lung cancer patient, um, but it's an exciting time to be a lung cancer clinician and researcher because there have been a lot of um, exciting developments in the field, um, most notably over the last uh, 10 to 15 years, the, um, the uh, introduction and uh, dissemination of lung cancer screening and um, more recently, the um, fact that we have new targeted therapies and immunotherapies that are much more effective than traditional chemotherapy in selected, um, selected uh, subpopulations of lung cancer patients. Um, so as you said, you know, lung cancer, unfortunately, is still the leading cancer killer. Um, in both the United States and the, and the wider world. And um, unfortunately, most patients still present with um, advanced stage disease. Over the years, the standard approach to lung cancer treatment has evolved such that your typical patient with stage one disease is treated with uh, surgery, at least for patients who are amenable to surgical cure. Uh, patients, much less commonly with stage two disease, um, are typically candidates for surgical resection, uh, uh, followed by adjuvant chemotherapy. 
The preferred approach for stage three disease is combined chemoradiation. And then finally, um, for stage four disease, systemic therapy with chemotherapy alone. And again, that's, uh, that's the, the largest group and also the group for which um, there are now new indications for targeted agents in patients with, um, with targetable mutations and uh, for other uh, patients uh, uh, who, are, who are candidates for immunotherapy. I, I think the other part of your question uh, was getting at the idea of how do we decide who is eligible for you know, what we'll call preferred therapies. And we actually see relatively large numbers of patients who, um, who because of underlying comorbidities or because their cancer has progressed to a point where they are, um, they're compromised and, and frail, they're really not, um, uh, the, the potential benefits of, uh, of uh, stage-specific treatment are outweighed by the, the harm. So as pulmonologists, we're very comfortable and, and uh, are often called upon to help assess whether a patient who has a, has a um, resectable cancer, which is typically stage one or two, whether that patient is also operable. And by that, we mean, do they have um, uh, sufficient cardiopulmonary reserve to tolerate the reception and the, um, and the post-operative period? And um, most of our attention um, most of our attention gets directed towards an assessment of pulmonary function and functional status and determining uh, whether, whether the, the patient will have sufficient pulmonary reserve or, or sufficient pulmonary function after the resection to, uh, to, to support uh, you know, spontaneous respiration and, and allow them to continue their activities. So the, criteria, the typical criteria are a predicted postoperative FEV1, uh, and predicted postoperative DLCO that's uh, greater than 40% predicted. For marginal candidates, we go on to do additional testing with, um, with, with shuttle walk tests and even with cardiopulmonary exercise tests. I think, you know, a, a lot of people, experienced clinicians, you know, make the comment that 90, 95% of the exam is, uh, is done in the first few seconds when you see the patient uh, either walk into the room or, or wheeled into the room, as the case may be. And I think that general assessment of functional status and, you know, what the oncologists call performance status is also very important. And so, again, for a lot of patients who present with advanced disease and um, uh, weight loss and progressive weakness related to the underlying malignancy, um, you don't need to go through a, uh, a long process to determine eligibility for treatment. Uh, it's it's pretty um, it's 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 pretty obvious just on the face of it. Well, that was a terrific introduction, Michael. So let's get into your study. So, what was the impetus of your study? How did uh, how did this study come to be? Yeah, so I think there's uh, increasingly a lot of interest in. Um, the influence of comorbid conditions on lung cancer treatment and outcomes. I, I think most clinicians have uh, recognized for years that um, they're important, but there have been surprisingly few 
um, empirical studies that specifically link um, number or types of comorbidities with outcomes. The ones that you know, intuitively are, are most uh, important and most common are chronic respiratory disease or COPD and, and um, cardiac disease. And of course, those two chronic diseases have a shared um, underlying etiology or at least strong risk factor with lung cancer in the, in the form of cigarette smoking. So it's no surprise that many lung cancer patients have coexisting uh, uh, COPD or cardiovascular disease. So we, we um, thought that we had a great opportunity to use our data resources, which you kindly mentioned earlier in the podcast, and to take a look at this more systematically. And so uh, we were intrigued by the question of, you know, what is the underlying burden of comorbid, uh, uh, of comorbid con conditions in our lung cancer population, but also um, to move the field forward by asking how do they cluster together? So can we recognize distinct patterns of comorbidities um, that, that might cluster in specific ways and that might have some implications for um, treatment selection or outcomes. Now other, others have um, been doing similar work and there's actually a, um, a forthcoming ATS research statement specifically addressing how to assess comorbidities in the context of lung cancer screening where it also becomes uh, so, so at that, at that uh, in, in that context, it's important, or the issue of comorbid conditions is important not only for treatment, but also for determining who's a, who's a uh, quote unquote good candidate for screening. Um, for the obvious reason that if you find an early lung cancer, you want to make sure that the patient is amenable to treatment. And um, there, there are also ongoing projects funded by NIH, NCI, and others to look at um, to look at this kind of thing. And we're actually involved in in one study with colleagues at Mount Sinai and Harvard, where we're we're going to be extending this work. But I think I'm getting ahead of myself there. No, that's actually perfect. So actually, let's get into your study design. Talk about obviously is the, the data and how you used it and then uh, summarize the findings uh, and the most important findings, uh, again, those specifically that, that are relevant to, to the clinician sitting in his or her office um, helping make decisions for lung cancer patients. Yeah, so before I um, get into the details of the, the study design, let me just um, take a quick pause to acknowledge my co-authors on the study, and I especially want to thank Corinne Munoz-Plaza, who is the co-first author on the manuscript, and, you know, since we uh, contributed equally, I just want to make sure that I, um, I acknowledge the great work that she did on, on this uh, paper. So our team, again, you know, has experience working with um, uh, data from electronic health records. We have an, uh, an advantageous situation in that uh, we're embedded researchers in a large integrated health system that has um, rich longitudinal data so that we can follow patients over the entire continuum of their 
um, well, even even before their lung cancer diagnosis. So um, we also have an internal cancer registry that contributes data to the Southern California Cancer Registry and then uh, ultimately to SEER. So we were able to link data from our local cancer registry with our uh, rich um, EHR data. And as you said, we identified um, almost 6,700 patients from our cancer registry who were diagnosed with lung cancer between 2008 and 2013. And then we used our EHR data to look back over a four-year period to identify comorbid conditions for which the patient had either an inpatient or outpatient, at least one inpatient or outpatient encounter with, um, with the appropriate diagnosis codes. The, uh, there were you know, a variety of exclusions that mainly focused on, on patients um, who either did not have a bronchogenic carcinoma, so there are cases in the cancer registry of carcinoid tumors or mesenchymal tumors or lymphomas that occur in the lung uh, that were excluded from our analysis. Um, and then things like non-analytic non cases, so patients who uh, uh, are in the cancer registry but uh, did not either get diagnosed or treated at our facility. Um, I'm going to let the interested reader look at our flow diagram if they want more details about that. Um, the other information that we derive from our electronic health records includes other information about uh, patient characteristics, so um, typical demographic information. Uh, as I mentioned before, there are comorbid conditions and then information about treatment and outcomes. Uh, the one other thing that's noteworthy about the, the, the data on comorbidities is that we grounded that in a uh, well-known and previously re recognized index of comorbid conditions, namely the, the Charleston Comorbidity Index. And uh, that allowed us to use standardized codes to determine whether or not a specific diagnosis was present during that, um, during that time window for data collection. So one of the things that, and again, just to, for, for those of us who are not familiar, so you used a latent class analysis. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's a great prompt because I was um, gathering my thoughts and, uh, <laughs> and, and that's really the, the next step. So, the, so what did we do for analysis um, once we had our our cohort assembled and our data collected, uh, we first just did simple counts of comorbid conditions. And uh, then, as I said before, because of this interest in recognizing um, distinct patterns with which uh, comorbid conditions might cluster together, we used a tool called latent class analysis. And we have a biostatistician in our group who um, is a familiar and expert with the methodology. And as I understand it, it's a, uh, a mixture modeling method, if that means anything to anyone, that um, doesn't rely on any distributional assumptions. So it's got that advantage. And it simply 
a way to take observations, in this case, lung cancer patients with one or more, or, or in some cases, no comorbidities, and put them into bins on the basis of, are, is one individual more alike or uh, not alike from another given uh, individual? And then the method allows us to determine a um, parsimonious solution for how many bins there should be. And, and actually there's no um, absolute uh, best way to decide whether a you know, three class solution or a five or a seven class solution is the best. So as in a lot of things, you have to exercise some judgment. But there are, there are statistical tests that can be used to say whether um, a five class solution uh, is significantly um, is, is significantly better at creating these distinctive classes than a four class solution. But you also want to um, make sure that the resulting classes are, uh, yeah, that they conform to clinical intuition and that, um, and that it's a relatively parsimonious um, set of classes. So it doesn't do anyone much good if there are, you know, a dozen or more distinct kinds of classes, no one would remember that or use that. So, um, so our analysis um, eventually settled on five distinctive comorbidity profiles that, um, that again, sorted our patient population into clinically recognized phenotypes. And so, you know, at the end of the day, to use language that, you know, most clinicians would understand, it's basically a, a phenotyping exercise and and uh, an attempt to identify patterns that uh, that describe our population. So, what were the so what were the important comorbidities? What 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 shook out across classes as as the comorbidities that that we should pay most attention to? Yeah. So, um, not surprisingly, the most common comorbid uh, diagnosis was COPD, and then um, peripheral vascular disease. Um, maybe a little surprisingly, was the next most common condition. Um, other cardiovascular diseases like MI and heart failure were also relatively common, as were uh, diabetes and, and renal disease. Um, if you look at our five classes, and I don't think any of what I just said is particularly surprising. I think the the insight and the contribution of the paper is how the um, how the clusters panned out. And one surprise is that the majority of our patients, so 60% of them, fell into a group that had either no comorbid conditions or a single comorbid condition. And in most cases, that was either COPD or um, uncomplicated diabetes. Uh, not surprisingly, these patients were um, a little bit younger. Uh, they were more likely to be never smokers. And um, they actually had the worst stage distribution uh, from patients in, in classes that had a greater comorbidity burden. But despite that, they, had, uh, they were most likely to receive recommended treatment and they had the best survival. 
um, in fact, sur survival was significantly better in class one than it was for any of the other classes. Um, again, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let me describe the other, uh, the other classes. So class two and class three were both composed of patients who um, had cardiopulmonary disease. So there was a high prevalence of COPD and uh, either peripheral vascular disease or uh, heart failure or prior myocardial infarction. Um, but uh, in general, they didn't have diabetes um, or chronic renal disease and their comorbidity score was on average uh, between three and four. So, so these are, you know, maybe what you can consider to be um, patients with posse um, comorbid disease as opposed to our class five patients who had, um, who had multiple comorbid conditions and who fall into this category, you know, that's recognizable as the, uh, the, the, the classic multimorbid patient. The thing, that's, the thing that distinguished class three patients from class two patients, um, just on the basis of how the diagnoses clustered, was the presence of cerebrovascular disease or stroke. So um, to be in class three, uh, virtually 100% of them had a history of cerebrovascular disease in addition to um, COPD and or other manifestations of cardiovascular disease. And then class four, um, these patients had by and large diabetes, longstanding diabetes with microvascular complications. So things like renal disease and um, retinopathy does not uh, fall on the list of Charleston comorbidities, so it was not included. But again, these were patients with, um, with uh, complicated diabetes. Uh, microvascular complications specifically, and few or no macrovascular complications. So that was a pretty distinguishing feature there. Um, and that was, uh, so I should mention that class two was the second largest group with 17% uh, of our sample. Uh, class four, the, uh, the long-standing diabetics were 12%, and then the um, the smallest groups were the cardiovascular disease plus stroke group, which is class three, and the and the patients with multiple comorbid conditions in class five, who, you know, had a, a Charleston score on average of seven or eight. So these are people who are really, really have a um, a large burden of comorbid conditions. So so what was the impact? How did the class correlate with prognosis, Michael, in your study, and then how did it impact? Um, their treatment options. I think that's really the 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 really meat of the of the findings and of your discussion. So, can you take us through that? Yeah. So the so so you know there's some value to the, this uh, this exercise of uh, phenotyping just from descriptive purposes. But ideally, you really want it to be something that has some you know predictive or prognostic significance. So um, we found that, and, and it's probably not surprising, that there, that class did predict um, receipt of stage-specific 
appropriate treatment and also was associated with survival. Now the survival um, association was statistically significant when you compared class one, when you made pairwise comparisons between class one and any of the four other classes and then it was a borderline significance if you compared class three with class five and in, in the other um, comparisons it was um, there were trends, but they were not statistically significant. Now, what's the mechanism by which uh, comorbidity profile has an effect on survival? So one, either the treatment doesn't work as well, or you don't get the treatment at all because you know you don't pass the um, you don't pass the test and you don't receive the appropriate treatment. And we think it's probably a combination of those two things, but it's more likely. Uh, driven by the latter concern. So we did find that, again, patients in class one were um, more likely to receive stage-specific uh, treatment, uh, whether it was for class, whether it was for stage one or two disease, in which case they were more likely to receive surgery than patients in other classes, or if it was for stage four disease, in which case they were more likely to receive chemotherapy than patients in other classes. And the class five patients are kind of the mirror image. They're the ones who are least likely to receive surgery for stage one and two, least likely to receive um, chemotherapy. In fact, 50% of the uh, class five stage four patients did not receive any treatment. So I, I, I'm glad you, I, that was actually anticipated my next question. So, so what was your reaction to that? What, were you surprised that, that more than half of the patients um, class five patients with advanced stage receive no treatment and and you think ultimately in a in a in the circumstance with you know real live patients should treatment be withheld in the setting of such a poor prognosis ultimately yeah i think um one thing to remember is that this is one of the smaller classes so we're talking about um 370 patients six percent of the sample and so half of them did not get um any treatment, whether that is because they, you know, again, so they're the oldest, they have the highest comorbidity burden. Um, so in some cases, this may be uh, because the treatment was offered but declined. In other cases, it could be because the, um, the oncologist who's, who's probably, you know, the decision maker or the decision partner for these patients, they, um, they, uh, concluded that the patient, you know, was more likely to be harmed by systemic chemotherapy than than helped by it. Um, yeah, I had something else on the tip of my tongue, but uh, we'll have to come back to it. Yeah, we'll come back to it. So, uh, were you able to assess the severity of the comorbidities in this uh, in your database, Michael? And what do you think the impact of the severity of comorbidities and is, and how would it impact lung lung cancer prognosis and your findings? Yeah, I think that's actually the most important limitation of the work. So um, we, you know, used available data and uh, actually looked at a limited number of comorbidities. We think they're, they're the ones that are, you know, most important. The Charleston has been something that people have used, you know, for something like 30 or more years now. It's been demonstrated to have very strong um prognostic uh, significance in multiple different patient populations. Um, but it's, it's missing some, you know, common comorbid conditions like hypertension, 
depression, which, you know, uncomplicated hypertension on its own is probably not going to impact treatment and outcome in lung cancer. Depression, you know, maybe is, is more uh, significant. But I think what you're getting at is, you know, just because someone has a diagnosis of COPD doesn't necessarily mean that they're not um, eligible for treatment. And likewise, a, a prior MI or even a diagnosis of heart failure doesn't necessarily exclude someone from treatment. Um, and it would be desirable to have, uh, you know, more specific data on pulmonary function and ejection fraction to establish severity. It would also be very helpful to have a, um, you know, documentation of uh, performance status in the in, in a structured format in the electronic health record. I think if I had a wish list for, you know, the, the data elements that would really uh, take this work to the next level, I think those are the those are the three th three or four things that would be um, most helpful. And actually, the, the fourth thing that that I was thinking of would be. Um, some measure of the severity of renal disease, which of course we have already, you know, based on uh, estimated GFR from the serum creatinine. So at the end of the day, do you think that functional status trumps, um, you know, the, the number of comorbidities? Obviously, functional status is obviously tied into comorbidities, but, but somebody who's got several comorbidities and maybe, you know, a higher class in your data, but who's got a pretty good functional status. We, we've all seen patients like that. Do you think that trumps? Um, maybe the class that they fit in ultimately? Yeah, I, I think it does. And, you know, this is an observational study, so we're able to look at all comers. I think, you know, one of the, you know, mitigating factors, um, if you want to take this into a research setting and, and actually use this, you know, you can argue that the absence of functional status is important. But, you know, if you look at most trials of, um, the, the very few trials of surgery for lung cancer or trials of radiotherapy or, or chemotherapy, um, you know, the patients who have poor functional status don't make it into that, make it into those studies anyway. And so you can still put this to use as a, um, as a tool to, you know, prognosticate. So, so why would you use this? You could use this for descriptive purposes. You could use it for stratification or adjustment and either you know, observational studies or even randomized trials. So it still has some relevance in those contexts. So let me, I want to switch gears just for a little bit and, and really talk about lung cancer screening. Obviously, you've been very intimately involved uh, in the development of lung cancer screening programs, and you've written about this. So, so what's the potential impact of your findings in this study on lung cancer screening? Does the presence of these comorbidities lead to less screening, and should it? What's your opinion about the impact on, on screening? Yeah, so I'm not sure that we know yet, and I think I mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation that the ATS uh, uh, recently sponsored a, a research statement that's um, that's uh, you know in the in the works at this point, looking specifically at the influence of comorbid conditions on decisions to screen and uh, decisions on what um, what if any treatment uh, patients with screening detected uh, abnormalities should have. Um, and I, th I think, you know, that whole field is in its infancy and we don't really know. Some of the things that are of interest to me are the, um, 
the double-edged sword of chronic respiratory disease or, or COPD. So on the one hand, patients with advanced COPD are not going to be, um, with very advanced COPD, are not going to be great candidates for um, major lung resection and may not even be candidates for um, aggressive radiotherapy or chemotherapy, but they, they may be candidates for SBRT, they may be candidates for ablation therapies, um, and, and we actually don't know, you know, you have to make a leap of faith and extrapolate from the National Lung Screening Trial to even guess whether those patients are going to have improved outcomes. But I, I think, you know, the other, um, the other edge of that sword is that the um, is that COPD um, defined in any number of ways, uh, either by spirometry, by self-report, by the presence of emphysema on, on CT scan, um, have all been uh, found to uh, be associated with a higher risk of lung cancer. And it's an ind they're independent predictors of lung cancer, so independent of age or smoking history. And we do know that the benefits of screening, or at least the relative benefit of screening, seems to be the same regardless of your baseline risk. And therefore, the higher the baseline risk, the more likely you are to benefit from screening, the more you have to gain. And so there's probably a sweet spot at which, you know, a patient with moderate COPD is the best possible candidate for lung cancer screening because their risk is very high and their disease is not so severe that they, um, that they wouldn't benefit from treatment. Thanks, Michael. Uh, are there any other comorbidities? I mean, you mentioned hypertension, which is one of the ones I was thinking about, but are there any other comorbidities that in your experience are important, but weren't included in the, in, in the Charleston uh, comorbidity index? Um, you know, I'm sure you can, Think of something. One of our sensitivity analyses, we looked at a uh, a more comprehensive index of comorbidity, which is the Alex Hauser index. The, um, the the current version of the Charleston has 17 comorbid conditions. I think the Alex Hauser has something like 27, um, but don't quote me on that. And um, the most common comorbidities, uh, the the most common. Alex Hauser defined comorbidities in our population were hypertension, depression, and obesity. And I think obesity is probably an important one that does have a, have a potential impact on uh, on treatment uh, selection. Okay. So what are, what are what are your next steps, Michael? Um, or is there external validation of of the model and and the classification being planned? Where do you, where do you go next? Yeah, we don't have any immediate plans to uh, validate externally, but I think it is an important step. And if if you know anyone who's uh, who's interested in doing that work with us, let me know. Hopefully, somebody's listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think otherwise, um, as I mentioned before, we're working with, um, with Juan uh, Wisniewski and his colleagues at Mount Sinai and another uh, group out of Harvard that's part of the CISNET uh, group uh, uh, funded by the NCI to do um, basically to create complex models of lung cancer um, incidents, uh, uh, treatment and, and outcomes. And so They've assembled a team that has access to not only our KP data, but also data from 
the VA, from Sierra Medicare, and I think several other sources, and they're building, they're, they're using that data to, um, to derive the best possible estimates of the frequency of comorbid conditions in the lung cancer population, um, what kind of treatment patients with different um, types of comorbidities receive, and how it affects outcomes. So um, they're really, and, and with our help, they're taking it to the next level by, um, by projecting um, how comorbid conditions specifically affect outcomes. So as we wind down, Michael, uh, I think it would be very helpful for our audience to hear from you. What, what are the major two or three take-home points about the study and about your findings that clinicians would find useful uh, with their patients? Two or three messages that you want to leave to the audience. Yeah, so I think I'm going to um, come to that in a second, but the, the one other thing that I wanted to mention in terms of the, the next steps is that we've actually applied the same approach in a uh, similar population of colorectal cancer patients and uh, came up with, a, a in, in that case, a four-class solution that had a lot of uh, similarities to what we saw in lung cancer. So there's interesting opportunities for um, for research that goes across different um, organ types. Um, but to uh, to get to your point about the uh, the take home the take home messages. Um, so first, I think we've we've shown that um, that. The prototypical lung cancer patient with multiple comorbid conditions is actually not the most common phenotype. 60% of our patients had either no Charleston comorbid condition or only one. And um, I think, you know, that's a, an important um, finding to counteract, you know, the, uh, the myth that and, and maybe even get to some of the nihilism around lung cancer. So, um, as, as you know, some people uh, consider lung cancer to be a self-inflicted disease. They assume that the lung cancer patient, because of the, uh, the history of tobacco smoking, is going to have other comorbid conditions. And I think that probably contributes to, you know, a more nihilistic approach uh, about treatment. So. I think if we can help make a dent in that, that's one important implication of the study. Um, I think um, the other novel finding is that there's a reasonably large group of lung cancer patients who, whose comorbidity prof profile is defined by longstanding diabetes with, with microvascular complications, but without significant um, you know, cardiac or peripheral vascular disease. And that's probably a unique group who are slightly more, uh, well, they're less likely to be excluded from uh, recommended treatments because the diabetes doesn't represent the same kind of contraindication to resection or chemotherapy that, you know, severe cardiopulmonary disease might. And, and I think, you know, fundamentally uh, and conceptually, we think this is important because it takes us a little bit closer. We don't think it's the, you know, the be all and end all, but I think it takes us a little bit closer to 
a more nuanced view of uh, how comorbid conditions cluster in um, the lung cancer population and how they interact to influence treatment and survival as opposed to just looking at them in isolation or, um, or uh, in number. And as, as we said before, it would also be really important and helpful to have information about, uh, about severity to complement this. Perfect. Any last thoughts, Michael? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, hopefully the findings will resonate for most clinicians, even if, you know, they don't formally adopt, a, you know, a class-based approach in their, you know, documentation, although, you know, we think that that's one potential clinical application. You can, you know, use a shorthand to describe a, you know, a class one or a class five lung cancer patient and uh, having that common language might um, might improve uh, uh, communication clinically as well as in research pur purposes. Um, I think you know clinicians are trained to recognize patterns, and the phenotypes that we identified in this analysis should be recognizable to most clinicians. Um, that said, you know there's always opportunities to extend this and to uh, to find more distinctive patterns so we don't we don't want to um, shut down future research that provides additional insight and, and maybe some important uh, that, that may have some important implications for treatment i think you know the other big caveat here is that as we move away from you know our current paradigm of stage-specific treatment to a paradigm that may be driven more by the molecular characteristics of the tumor, um, all of this could, you know, change. So there may be patients who um, are eligible for a targeted therapy or immunotherapy who, you know, you wouldn't consider for um, chemotherapy or, or, you know, as we start gaining experience with targeted and immunotherapies in patients with earlier stage disease, uh, patients who wouldn't be considered for surgery. So um, I think we're really on the cusp of fundamental uh, uh, changes in how we um, evaluate lung cancer patients, how we stage them. And, um, you know, interestingly, it's all driven by the availability of new therapies. Well, we've certainly come a long way in lung cancer in general with the screening protocols and certainly the the, the development of a lot more treatment options that, that, than it used to be there. And, and it seems to me that the work that you're doing um, and the others are doing certainly, I think, jives very well with the, with the idea of personalized medicine, that treating individual tumors using staging and otherwise, but, but using more sophisticated biomarkers and, and kind of clinical assessments. Um, this drives very well with the, with the thought of personalizing care for lung cancer patients and other lung patients moving forward. So, um, so I, yeah. So in our, in our internal conversation, sorry to cut you off, but that's okay. you know, we refer to this project as the comorbidome project. <laughs> Every project needs a name, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, listen, I'd like to thank you again, Michael, for joining the podcast. That was, that was a terrific discussion. Uh, and I hope the audience has found today's discussion on the impact of comorbidities on lung cancer prognosis and treatment choices informative uh, and helpful to your clinical practice as I have. Until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS. Thank you for joining in.